coming from uh, Romans 8, verses 18 through 28. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thank you. If I really think about it, I can remember the sound of singing children and being one of them. More than a dozen of us gathered into Mrs. Sharouse Busy Bee Preschool singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. It was the autumn in southeast Georgia where the seasons themselves are frustratingly seamless. Only temporary reprieves from the long, unforgiving savannah summer, which is the season of the swamp perpetually. But I remember the Octobers of my childhood as cold and gray, and I loved them. And maybe the fall of 1987 was one of them when I stood with the other children singing. And though my family was born, uh, was both Southern and Christian, and thus entangled by the tentacles of a conservative culture, the satanic panic, ever fretful of the encroaching evils of rock music and witchcraft, not to mention both dungeons and dragons. So (laughs) my parents, like my friend's parents, were protective. It was a big, bad world out there. And even so, the 80s were a different era of child raising, an era without cell phones or helicopter parents, an era of preschool carpools, of five-year-olds walking by themselves to kindergarten, of being dropped off alone at birthday parties and sleepovers. And so I went from place to place, get-togethers, babysitters, friends' homes, and I was okay. Somehow, I was not peer pressured, not really anyway. I was not abused, not traumatized in the ways that, according to some statistics, as many as one in every seven children experience. And I went home to hot meals around a dinner table of a loving family. He's got the whole world in his hands. And sometimes I think of life itself as this complicated outworking of patterns and chaos. And as a grown man now with children of my own, I think, isn't it incredible that I evaded the abuse and neglect that somehow finds one in every seven children? When my group was called, I was one of the six lucky children to escape the awful fate of the one. And then, 
Sometimes when I think about these things, I think of children like Elisa Esquierdo. When Elisa was born in 1989, her mother was in the throes of crack cocaine addiction, so Elisa went to live with her father, and her father loved her. She excelled in school and was said to have been spirited and confident, like many children, full of love and life. But then Elisa's mother came back, and she fought within the system to regain custody of Elisa, and during court-granted and unsupervised visits began to abuse her. And the reports went ignored and overlooked or dismissed and unanswered. Terrified and helpless, Elisa's father made plans to relocate the family in hopes of escaping the sinister reach of Elisa's mother. He bought plane tickets for May 26, 1994, and when that day finally came, on that exact day, he died. So, Elisa went to live with her mother, who then began an unfathomable year-long campaign of torture so horrific, it was later described by New York City police as the worst case of child abuse they had ever seen. When Elisa was sick, she succumbed to compounding injuries and overwhelming trauma doled out by her own mother, and she died. He's got the whole world in his hands. I wonder if she ever sang that song in school. I wonder if she ever went to Sunday school at all or heard stories about Jesus of Nazareth, who famously welcomed little children who described God's infinite loving concern for human beings as so profound that the hairs on Elisa's head had been numbered by God himself. And I wonder if she ever wondered, is God watching this happen? During the long final year of her short life, did she ever wonder, why won't he help me? When Elisa was lined up along a wall with six other children and life's cruel chaos announced, you, you are the unlucky winner of this awful lottery, did she ever wonder why? Because I have, hearing a story like that, I have, I venture, I guess I'm not alone in this. In fact, if there's anything, one thing that has challenged every doctrine and theology, every belief that I hold so dear as a disciple of Jesus, it is probably Suffering, not just the problem of evil, we'll get to that in a minute, but profound and horrifying, unjust, chaotic suffering. Open your Bibles once again to Romans chapter 8. You guys are knee-deep in an ongoing series about suffering. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus said that. Suffering is something that I think and talk about a lot. Now, I realize that's a weird thing to admit, so I should tell you, Bridgetown Church, rest easy, I am a Christian. Uh, You never know these days, even up here. Uh, (laughs) And though I have and continue to wrestle with these questions about evil and chaos and pain, I wrestle without bailing out. That intro, I know, was intense, but I am a Christian, phew, sigh of relief. If we haven't met, my name is Josh Porter. I was a pastor here at Bridgetown years ago before they sent me down the road to plant a church called Van City. It's almost like they were trying to get rid of me, presumably for the way I start sermons, who knows. (laughs) Even so, Bridgetown really means a lot to me, and this is my first time preaching here under the new management, you know? So, (laughs) really got to make a good impression. It's a lot of pressure. But I don't think New Tyler is even here at all, nor Gerald, so really, we can get away with a lot. (laughs) And it's weird being up here, the stage feels so strangely futuristic, it's like, you know, Bridgetown, a space odyssey, or uh, Bridgetown Church in space. That's what I thought the first time I saw it. Anyway, 
I am a Christian, and just listen to me own that term. Three times I've said it now, Christian. I realize this is a culturally confusing and politicized word, but heck, these days I like it. There was a time when, like many of my fragile generation, I wanted to distance myself from the ugly American connotations ferried on the back of the term Christian. So I used things like Jesus follower instead, which is also a totally fine term. But this may surprise you, Bridgetown Church, I am at heart a contrarian, something of a provocateur, I'm told. So... I enjoy seeing people screw up their faces as if biting into a lemon when I use the word Christian. So I'll be at like a a checkout line in Portland and they'll ask, how's your day going? And I'll say, pretty good. I just finished work. And they say, oh yeah, what do you do? They're just trying to populate that small two minutes of silence that would be there. And I say, I'm the pastor of a church. And they go, a church? You know, like audibly nervous. What kind of church? And then they, they're trying to answer for me, hopeful. Is it Unitarian or New Age or Pride Flag Lutheran or Progressive Spiritual Buddhist Infusion or Multi-Religious Identity Safe Space? <laughs> and I say, none. None of the above. And then I hit them with the horrifying word, Christian. That's right. Jesus, the Bible, the whole thing. And I watched them go inward, you know, head swimming with questions. Oh, God, is he one of them? Is he anti-science? Is he an angry right-wing conspiracy cultist? And, of course, being none of those things, I could set their minds at ease, but I don't because it's funny. (laughs) Have a good day, I say. (laughs) Now, if you'll just hand over my oat milk and my Impossible Burgers, I'll be on my way, you know. And I drive my little Prius home listening to angry punk rock music because I'm so rebellious. <laughs> and here's where I'm going with all that. I drink oat milk and I drive a 2007 Prius. What does someone like me know about suffering? Is that a fair question? It depends on who you ask. But the truth is, though it takes many shapes, every human being experiences suffering. And no one wants to hear this. No matter what precautions you take, To avoid the lurking phantom of suffering, suffering will find you. No matter how hard you work, how healthy you become, how wonderful your family is, something could ruin everything you've built. No amount of planning or finance or attempted control can stave off bereavement or sickness or betrayal, financial ruin, or an innumerable host of troubles and tragedies that come creeping into your comfort and security to needle the bubble of your otherwise happy life. And anyway, you slice it. Life itself, we know, is fragile, forever subject to forces beyond our control. And on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. Comfortable or otherwise, you and everyone you love will die. Christians know this, on some level anyway, but we struggle to make sense of it because as far as we can tell, we're being asked to believe two things many of us cannot bear to reconcile, which brings us to Romans chapter 8. And I want to skip all the way back down to verse 28 of what Matt just read. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do we know that? Is that true? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him? A few years ago... A young man showed up at our church, uh, Van City, 
and he got involved. He was at the same time somewhat secretly preparing for a dangerous trip. Unbeknownst to a lot of people in our community, this guy had lots of experience traveling the world, telling people uh, about Jesus and different cultures. And he had been in training and preparation for this journey to an island in India uh, that was home to an indigenous people in voluntary isolation with whom he had long hoped and dreamed to share the story of Jesus. So he prayed and he trained and he planned and he prepared. And because the journey was dangerous and illegal, most of the people in our church didn't even know about it until the third day of his visit to the island when we learned with the rest of the world that the tribe had already killed him. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You know, a story like this is actually easy to romanticize. Young, intrepid missionary travels to distant land, compelled by the love of Jesus, who died in his effort to further the gospel. But his parents did not think it was beautiful. When one of the pastors at our church last spoke to his mother, she was in such a state of shock, she refused to believe her son had died at all, saying that maybe if she just kept praying, he would come home. His father, on the other hand, told media outlets that he blamed Christianity itself for his son's death, that his brainwashed son had followed the lunacy of this movement to its natural conclusion and paid the price. And however incredible this young man's resolve may have been, the truth is that before his final visit to the island, one of the last things he would ever write in a letter to his family was this prayer, God, I don't want to die. The story proliferated, making international headlines, and the young man was depicted as everything from a naive Instagrammer to an evil colonist, so that strangers could come together in their ridicule and condemnation while his body remained somewhere on that island. There were, to our current knowledge, no converts. As far as we can tell, the gospel was never even preached. He died, his parents lost their son, the island remains ignorant to the gospel. In all things, God works to for the good of those who love him. And that is an extraordinary story, but you know this story too, because though we tend to quantify and qualify degrees of suffering and thus the legitimacy of one's suffering against another's, really everybody suffers. And that extraordinary story exemplifies what many of you already know all too well, that though we can sing in all things God works for the good, though we can say it and sing it, and pray it, life often defies us to believe it. Those of you who have known pain well know also of the way we Christians, unable or unwilling to behold the horrible face of suffering, rush instead to usher it from the room with our hasty, half-baked veneer of optimism. But look, some good stuff happened too, we say. And isn't God so good? Who are we to complain? As if whatever nice thing that blossomed from the awfulness of the tragedy, the death, the disease, is some consolation prize that can be won only by our misery. Now hurry up and feel good about it. Sing a song. Tell us an inspiring story. Dang it. Sing something. When really what we want to say isn't a statement at all, but a question. Why? And the Bible has answers, but not simple ones, and this is also frustrating. Watch this. We can build the basic overview of three things, the physical and spiritual realms, freedom, and chaos. Watch. Here's what you have to deal with first. It begins on a cosmic scale. The setup for the Bible's epic narrative is of two distinct but overlapping realities. You have the physical realm and the spiritual realm, the former, a world of matter and crude materials, plants and animals, people, 
the latter of unseen spiritual creatures and domains. But both realms are populated by very real living beings with the power to interact with and affect both dimensions of reality, for better or for worse. The physical world can affect the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm can affect the physical realm. Sounds weird to us, maybe, but the Bible just takes this for granted. It presents a consistent portrait of human beings who can communicate with the God of the universe, even compel him to act with their prayers. We, in the physical world, can interrupt and thwart the activity of evil spirits or stir angelic beings that we cannot see to action with our words and deeds. And it works the other way as well. Spiritual beings in the unseen realm can come to the aid of human beings or conspire against them to do them harm. Because in the same way that there are human and spiritual beings on God's side, there are human and spiritual beings set against God. Which is a weird thing to say. How could that possibly be? And the answer is because we get to pick. In the Bible story, human beings have been created with agency, meaning freedom to do what they want. And spiritual beings have been given the same autonomy. Why? Couldn't God get what he wants by exercising unilateral control over the creation? Well, sure, he could, but then there would be no authentic relationship, no collaboration, and no love. Look at the way one little-known thinker called C.S. Lewis summarizes this idea. God created things which had free will. This means creatures can go wrong or right. Free will, though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. He goes on to say, of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, That is, for making a real world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it is worth paying. So we get to pick. And with all this grand, God-given decision-making prowess, both us and these spiritual beings have screwed this place up. I don't mind telling you it's a terrible mess, the world. Have you been in it lately? last couple of years have brought that to everyone's attention in unique and powerful ways. But really, it started a long, long time ago. Jesus put it this way, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires, he says to the corrupt religious leaders of his day. And he says this about the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But what's interesting to me about that particular statement is that Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning, as in the very beginning. The New Testament, the church fathers and mothers, the first Christians, and the early disciples of Jesus uniformly argued that spiritual beings, like humans, were created free, and that they, like humans, were given influence and responsibility in the world, and like humans, some of them used said influence to tear this place apart. It's a bit like God prepared this incredible art gallery 
just for those he loved most in the world. And we all came in with muddy boots and eating and spitting and shouting and unruly crescendo that escalated from careless disrespect to aggressive, destructive evil. And the mob began to rip and tear and pull the paintings from the wall, smearing filth on every masterpiece, bludgeoning one another with every sculpture. If I were God, I would have canceled the event when they just started talking loud. I'd have said, that's it. Forget this idea. I'm going to blow up the whole gallery and all of you guys with it because you're awful and now this place is too. If I was God, not as a person. But he didn't. He didn't revoke our freedom nor the freedom of human beings or spiritual beings. Instead, he set to work to fix things. And for reasons that defy comprehension, God is not only patient and forgiving during this awful catastrophe, he follows behind us cleaning things up, enlisting recruits, in his relentless and unwavering determination to still pull this thing off with us rather than without us. It's mystifying. It really is the commitment of this guy. And that's an analogy, so it breaks down. But my point is that God, in his quest for relational collaboration, gave both human and spiritual beings a say. And together, we have made a terrible mess. Our world, our lives, our own souls are broken, bent out of shape, bent away from what is true and good and toward that which destroys us. But it gets worse. You know from experience A single act of evil, even a simple one, a cutting word or a fractured relationship or a lie, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has consequences. And the same is true on a cosmic scale. Simple actions set in motion ripples in the waters of the universe, as it were, and those ripples intersect with other ripples. Our bad decisions affect a moment, affect a life, affect a generation. And now, because our world is broken and ravaged by evil, we are often caught in the crossfire of all that fallout, complicated, purposeless chaos. The physical and spiritual realms, freedom and chaos. It's a mess, a mess with lasting, complex, chaotic consequences. So at least on a biblical, theological level, you might answer the question, why do we suffer? One of four ways. We suffer because of our own choices uh, or because of the choices someone else makes or a combination of the two, or consequences from both, both direct and indirect. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that when we suffer, it's always our fault. Uh, Elisa Izquierdo's profound, unimaginable suffering had nothing to do with any choice she made and everything to do with choices her mother made. And the choices her mother made came on the heels of other compounding choices and tragedies and traumas in her life. Sometimes these choices are direct, as with Elisa and her mother, and sometimes they're abstracted from the decision maker. Why are children in other countries enslaved and abused? Because some shopper on the other side of the world wants to shop at H&M and Nike, and we don't even see those children. The mess we're in is a complex web of choices, of physical and spiritual forces, and the fallout from both. We suffer because we, the world, just don't want God. We don't believe that he is best, not really. We don't believe he wants what is best for us, which is a cruel irony because we receive God's loving, wise guidance as restrictive and oppressive, and we foolishly run from that which gives life and toward that which kills. We are broken, 
bent away from what is good and holy and toward that which is sinful and destructive. We suffer because the cosmos itself is at war and we are caught in the crossfire of an ancient battle between good and evil, God, angels, demons, evil spirits, sickness and death, natural evil, hurricanes, tsunamis. Creation itself, Paul writes, is groaning to be liberated from its bondage to decay. And finally, brace yourself for this one, we suffer for no good reason at all. Despite the many Christian funeral pep talks we've endured and platitudes on the lips of well-meaning bystanders to our tragedies, suffering is not from the outset inherently meaningful. Not every tragedy becomes a beautiful redemption story. Suffering itself can be arbitrary, cruel, and meaningless. On the opening pages of his memoir, Once More We Saw Stars, Writer Jason Green wrote about the day that his two-year-old daughter was sitting outside on a bench with her grandmother in front of their family's apartment building. A brick came loose from a windowsill above her head, fell, and killed the girl. No one threw the brick. Had it fallen moments earlier or moments later, it would have hit an empty bench and crumbled. But it didn't. It hit the little girl. Maybe of one person who had interacted with that brick over the many years before it fell had done so differently, it wouldn't have been loose, or it would have fallen some other time, but it didn't. And out came a tidal wave of grief and agony as if from a burst dam, and there was and is no person or thing on which to set all that pain. It happened for no good reason at all, meaningless, indifferent chaos. Why and how it happens aside, suffering is inevitable. So what do we do? There are four popular reactions to pain, grief, and tragedy. First, we tend to mitigate the pain. The Western world is perhaps least equipped to confront the reality of suffering. Brands and corporations are poised on all sides to provide you with innumerable methods of staving off the horror of hardship. Some of them good. We have seat belts and airbags for the car wreck. We have insurance for the flood and fire. We have vitamins and exercise for your immune system. And these things aren't inherently bad at all. Why not mitigate and minimize hardship? Wear your seatbelt, I say. Personal endorsement. It's like Matt said. What was your thing? I would recommend, he says, of seatbelts. But no matter how clever the hiding place, suffering will find us. And eventually, what do we do? We can avoid it or deny it. Mortified, many of us barrel after medication and distraction, social media for curating your image and fighting off the insecurity, streaming services and pornography for the loneliness and existential dread, some relationship or some career as our last great hope to find meaning and satisfaction in the face of the all-consuming void, or fabricate a smile, a superficial rictus to wear like a mask of religious triumph. We're still joyful. We still believe. We don't feel a thing. Anything but face the suffering head on. And when the balls of wood columns of mitigation and avoidance crack and crumble, we can despair. Despair is a coping mechanism I know very well. The point at which the sufferer becomes intoxicated by their own pain, unwilling to climb up from or be lifted and carried out of life's mire of agony. Thomas Merton wrote that despair is the absolute extreme of self-love. It is reached when a person deliberately turns his back on all help from anyone else in order to taste the rotten luxury of knowing himself to be lost. 
Ah, yes, this I know very well. See, the rubric by which we assess one's eligibility to comment on suffering is these days no longer experiential in the specific sense, meaning you've been through something, I've been through something. It's more about identity. Here's what I mean. A few years ago, I was asked to uh, appear in some documentary about evangelicalism's obsession with uh, nationalism and military violence. Now, I should tell you, Bridgetown Church, This sounds like an impressive claim, but really it isn't. The truth is, uh, a friend of mine's dad was funding the documentary, and he had heard me go on about this kind of thing, so my my friend's dad tells these filmmakers, you need to put this guy in your movie, to which they responded, I'm sure, who? Uh, Because I'm not an influencer, not famous, not a Bible scholar, not a historian, spoiler alert, but... I'm also not so proud as to reject the offer. So I said, a movie, sure. Um, You know, the truth is, Bridgetown Church, that when I leave here, I am driving that 2007 Prius back across the river to my small neighborhood church. Now, that's not a gripe. That's just to say that I am not, under normal circumstances, hotly pursued to documentaries about pressing social issues. But the way I figure, the world should be so lucky as to hear what I have to say. So I went off to appear in this film, you know? I drove out to Camas, Washington. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this place, but it's what we in the business call rich people world, Camas, Washington. And they were shooting in this big, expensive suburban home, and I sat there on a stool, all these lights and cameras on me, and I commented on things about which I have many thoughts and opinions, but little to no experience. Things like the martyrs of church history or conscientious objectors, the great examples of Christian nonviolence throughout church history like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm talking about these things theoretically as someone who reads about them in books. And eventually the filmmaker poses the popular question, what qualifies you to speak on these things? Isn't it easy for you to say you're white, you're male, you're sitting here in this nice house in Camas musing about things you haven't actually experienced? It's a fair question. Who gets to talk about what? Who should comment on suffering in the big, broad sense. Not all pain is the same. This is very true. But something my therapist used to tell me often is pain is pain. The last eight or so years of my life have been pretty different from the 30 years that came before them. Sure, I made it to about 30 with the same cuts and scrapes all of us endure by simple virtue of the human condition. But mostly I had it pretty good. There was no tragic movie backstory. Then, about eight years ago, um, I had my first bad thing happen, or, you know, significant bad thing happen. My dad came to visit me after my first kid was born. He caught the flu while he was visiting, and after a long, miserable roller coaster in the ICU, he died suddenly. No one was expecting this. It was a stupid, long ordeal. Not long after that, my wife's dad got cancer and withered away before our eyes, one after the other. And with no cinematic tragedy in either of our early years, both of us were left not really knowing how one grieves. And this stupid thing that happened to both of us should have, we thought, brought us together. And instead, it became this wedge between us. And then at that same time, I finally reached a point when decades of my uh, almost entirely private self-loathing reached a fever pitch. And I entered a season so dark and so bleak that I came very close, dangerously close, to giving up. It was a strange, ever-present pain wrought by extreme hatred of the self, aggravated, I believe, by demonic forces and indulged by my own selfish tendency toward nihilism. Or as Thomas Merton said, to taste the rotten luxury of knowing myself to be lost. 
And maybe you'd scoff thinking of the way my precious little life compared to someone else's seems practically utopian, and and maybe you'd be right. But I can tell you with integrity, it hurt. Uh, I was in pain. It doesn't mean that my pain wasn't as important or as legitimate or even equal to the suffering of someone else. It just means that all of us experience pain. I went through a few difficult years of therapy and counseling and mentoring, spiritual formation, inner healing prayer, and I experienced incredible breakthrough and healing and relief. And today, those dark years seem to me almost as as if they happened to someone else. Uh, And as I wrote this teaching, I thought about the shifting phantasm of pain and suffering in different seasons of life. Today, right now anyway, I'm doing pretty well. My marriage and my family, not perfect by any means, but mostly healthy and thriving, trying to follow Jesus where he leads in this season and stage of my apprenticeship to him. But then some new thing comes along to hurt. You know, uh, as I was thinking of how to put this, I thought of the way that uh, I'm a a deeply relational person, not a social butterfly per se, but I want meaningful relationships. I get matching tattoos with my friends. So (laughs) I spent a few years kind of prioritizing a small number of close uh, friendships rather than indulging lots of fun but ultimately superficial acquaintances, and that was pretty important to me. It took a lot of work. But then over the last couple of years, for reasons I think beyond my control, those close friendships, some of them begun to drift, and for the first time in my life, I, I found myself in a time of morning prayer, looking out my window on a dark, quiet street and confessing to God, feeling silly about it, God, I need you to bring me some friends. And I thought that God's predictable response would be, I was like I was the straight man setting him up for the punchline. I thought that he would say, I will be your friend, my son. But surprisingly, it was more like, no, you need some friends. Um, And I didn't want to tell you guys the story because it's embarrassing. And please, no one offered to be my friend after this. My point is that suffering takes all kinds of different shapes and inhabits many dimensions and degrees of hurt. And it weaves itself into both the broken down junk heap of our lives and into the otherwise happy comfortability of our peaceful little world. I feel pretty good, mostly. But now there's this new little pain that I wasn't prepared for, a new kind of loneliness. It doesn't seem like much compared to where I've been and where um, what I've been through. And it doesn't seem like much compared to someone else's pain, what things that they've been through. But here we all are, each of us discovering new ways to hurt, things that we didn't prepare for. So what else do we do but mitigate, avoid, or despair, we as disciples of Jesus? We've been taught to turn to God in the throes of our pain. How do we do that? To end this morning, I want to ask uh, two questions. First, how does God respond to our suffering? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do we know that? Is that true? Before we can answer, let's start with this. As we built that paradigm of causation, the physical and spiritual realms, freedom, chaos, notice God's mysterious purposes were not among the causes for our suffering. God does not determine, cause, will, or ordain the evil that brings about suffering. He did not puppeteer Elisa's mother's hands He did not guide the brick that killed the two-year-old girl. He did not infect my dad with the flu. He did not nurture the cancer growing inside my father-in-law. He did not sow in me seeds of self-hatred and suicide. The world 
is broken. Broken from our own decisions, the decisions of others, a cosmic war. Why would he wire a universe this way? The great risk of love. Imagine a man and a woman prayerfully choosing to bring children into the world. This is something my wife and I did. We talked about it, we planned, we prayed, and then we made the decision. And I thought a lot about the inevitability of my children's suffering, that I could not know how great it would be, how hard their lives would become. I knew that even if I did my very best, my very best would not stave off each and every tragedy that awaited them. I knew all that, and we chose to have kids anyway, and I do not regret it. Any half-decent parent will tell you that if it were somehow possible, they would gratefully take their children's suffering onto themselves just to spare them the pain. I would. And yet, my love for my children is so profound, even in the finite limitations of my humanity, that no suffering can make me wish to undo this arrangement, that I brought them into this world to love them. I am not a better dad than God. So God has entered our mess. In fact, that outrageous passage in Romans has more to say about God's involvement in our pain than some insulting depiction of a limited and mean-spirited God who orchestrates our misery just to teach us a lesson. We know that in all things, God works for the good. In the English translation, God works for the good. The, The word works is synergeo in Greek, where we get the word synergy. It implies not divine determination that God causes all things, but instead a creative, collaborative energy to repurpose all things for good. And he does. God is so creative that he even uses suffering he does not cause to do the sufferer good. Time and time again, the authors of Scripture emphasize the unique ability of pain and suffering to catalyze growth and maturity in those who suffer. In fact, the scriptures use a recurring metaphor for pain as a refining fire. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus the King is revealed. Pain has the unique potential to change, grow, and mature you. God can use the awful thing that neither he nor you wanted to deepen your love and dependence on him, to enrich and mature your character, to grow in your compassion and humility, and even, ironically, to teach you a new dimension of joy and peace that flow not from ephemeral contentment or comfort, but from the ever-accessible peace of God, which transcends all understanding. God does not require your suffering to enrich and mature you, but he is good enough and intelligent enough and creative enough to enter into your suffering and repurpose it for your good and for the good of others. Though not necessarily one person endures the death of a parent or a divorce or cancer or war and comes out on the other side deeply connected to God, humble, at peace, and more mature than ever before, But then another comes out angry, embittered, depressed, addicted, and never regains their traction in life. What's the difference? How we respond to our suffering. And for this, we need one another, the church, belong 
to this family, your brothers and sisters. Bring your pain to the table of community, to the sanctuary of worship. Mourn with those who mourn. Walk with one another. Hold one another up. Do not hide. Sit with one another. Talk to them. Talk to counselors and therapists and pastors and friends. Do not retreat, hide, or despair in the face of your pain. Face it. Do not succumb to the skulking predators of bitterness and hatred. Do not allow yourself to be absorbed by self-pity or despair. Hurt, but do not give in to the hurt. Stare in the ugly face of your suffering and let your family see it as well. And brothers and sisters, learn to let each other hurt without rushing to whisk it away with songs and empty fortune cookie promises. Hurt, let one another hurt without being destroyed or warped by it. Let one another hurt and then pick each other up and walk one another toward healing. And in all this, bring your pain to God. God knows a lot about pain and he hates it. He does not tempt you or trick you or hurt you just to teach you a lesson. He does not decree the suffering and abuse of children, the death of good people or bad people to accomplish his mysterious purposes, as if God were so narrow and flimsy a being as to require bad things just to get good things done. God does not hit you and maim you and confuse you just to draw you near to him, reducing his shivering followers to the fretful hand-wringing obedience of Stockholm Syndrome. And yet we, in all our collective misery, heap protest and outrage upon God as one presenting our bruised and broken visage, the shuffling bone heap of our life-wearied bodies to God, asking, why have you done this to me? And in response, God himself climbs down from the imminent invincibility of heaven, steps through the death-laden veil of mortality and hurt into the mess that we made. Because the all-powerful creator God of the universe, the holy and supreme being that Jesus knew by the tender intimacy of Abba, Father, this God is above and beyond the death-obsessed filth of our selfishness, our vandalism of all that is good. He decreed, no matter what they have done to me or to themselves or to one another, I will love them and I will pursue them unto death. I will voluntarily lower myself into the depths of human corruption that they would not suffer alone, that their hurt would not last forever, that I might save them from themselves. So hurt and hurt with the God who suffers, the God who entered this awful world more lowly than most of us can even imagine, born not amongst royalty but cradled by a poor teenager, fanning flies from his blood-streaked face, breathing deep the fetid stench of livestock and manure, that rather than retreat to the heavenly domain to which he was entitled, the feet of God were caked in the dirt of our broken world, and he hurt like the rest of us, and he watched with human eyes as the people he loved died, as injustice and oppression rang out like a terrible chorus over his family and friends, that he bandaged broken skin like the rest of us, that he was tired and hungry, and that he even despaired his own mortality and the agony that awaited his mortal flesh, that he was abandoned and betrayed by those he loved, that he was humiliated, reduced to a naked, quaking, blood-sodden object upon a Roman 
device of torture and death, while his own mother was made to watch her beloved son succumb to sepsis and shock and could do nothing to ease his unimaginable torment. Would we really allow our hearts to harden and embitter beneath the fire of our suffering, railing against God as if he were that privileged person unworthy to speak to our pain? Would we really speak to this God as if he is indifferent to pain and suffering, as if he cannot imagine what it means to hurt this God who suffered willingly in solidarity with his beloved to set them free from their suffering? Would we really tremble before this God as if it were he himself who struck us down in his arbitrary capriciousness, our pain only a footnote in the grand scheme of his big important plans? Plans he chooses to accomplish using the abuse of children, the cancer in the bones of your loved ones, the head-on collision, the falling brick. Does not God, the good and loving God, know this pain and hate these things more than we and our sinful brokenness can begin to imagine? And will not the good and loving God have the final say in the story of our pain? Yes, he is speaking now. Yes, today, God subverts evil and repurposes our suffering, but that is not the last nor greatest chapter in this story. For even as he subverts evil and repurposes our suffering, we still die. Jesus raised Lazarus, but Lazarus died again. His one mirac once miraculous form went moldering in the dirt, as will ours. But that is not the end of the story. For today, as chaos reigns, and the serpent has his say, and death towers over us, a hulking inevitability, God himself reminds us in King Jesus, not for long. And he promise us, promises us a coming day. Because Jesus suffered, he can declare that a day is coming when no longer the news media will bury us beneath stories of suffering and discord and despair, where now in the world our clothes and coffee come on the wearied backs of human slaves, where materialism drains our lives of depth and peace, where pornography tangles the brains of children and where children are trafficked to make pornography, where now in the world we are bombarded with images of flashing machine gun muzzles and erupting bombs, the bruised and mal nourished faces of helpless children, of stories in which foster children are bound and entombed in freezers, of infants beaten and violated, of cancer and HIV, of car crashes and miscarriages, of hurricanes and tsunamis, of war criminals and pedophiles. There is a coming day when Jesus, the serpent-crushing king of the world, will say, no more of this. And the abusers of children will never hurt another child, and God will bind and still the fists of every man standing over every crying, battered woman. God will topple the systems of power and injustice that made so many voiceless and invisible. And those who are terrorized by the world, the abused and oppressed, the sick, the poor, those forgotten by all the world and left to their suffering, God himself will take them in his arms, and he will wipe every tear from every eye, and suffering itself will be no more. And to the abusers, the victimizers, the powerful, the predators, God will decree, you will never put your hands on another child ever again. You who used your power against the weak and vulnerable will be made powerless forever. And you, the snake who leads the world astray, you will be destroyed and on that day, he will do more than subvert or repurpose all our pain. He will eradicate evil, tear it up by the roots from all of creation. And even though we made this mess, God will rescue us from it 
once and for all. More than a personal escape to the clouds, God's ultimate end is the complete and utter undoing of every wrong and every evil. God's ultimate purpose in creation is that the world he once created good will be utterly restored, a place in which on earth as it is in heaven is answered in full. So, hurt. Hurt before God and with God and hope. That our hope would ring out in defiance of the evil one. You have hurt us and deceived us, and now we break and we die, but we will yet mock you because the day is coming. We hope not in a predestined purpose for our pain, but in the wisdom of God to do us good even in our suffering, and in the power of God to one day bring all of our suffering to an end. Amen. Amen.